Let me tell you a story, podcast number 85. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago, age never mind it is a how truth long You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine or a lace of your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, I'm Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. We are excited to have a special guest author with us in our home studio on this 85th Let Me Tell You a Story podcast. Lisa Hess is not only a good friend and a wonderful writer, she's a great reader and will be reading from a short story collection she helped me compile and edit a couple years ago. The book is called Passageways, and this story is one she wrote. It's titled, A Small Mistake. One day, when I was very young and my brother barely more than a baby, he and I boarded the wrong bus. I don't think of that immediately, though, as I watch the scarlet points on each of Evie's cheeks seep across her face and converge with the red tide creeping up her neck. Incensed by my audacity, she sputters, But, but, when did you do that? When I said I would, Evie, I form each word slowly, my tone carefully neutral. I said I was going to make an appointment for the Playwell Company to talk to the city council about a new playground across from the diner. Before she can interrupt, I add, it's just an informational session. We agreed I would set up the meeting. The following month, I reported that I had scheduled it. Well, I wasn't at those meetings. Her voice is rising with her color. I know I should keep my mouth shut, but I can't help myself. Actually, you haven't been at the last three meetings, but the information was in the minutes and you were at the meeting where we all agreed we should pursue the idea of creating a playground on one of the vacant city lots. Then, we unanimously voted to do just that. She sits back and glares at each of us seated around the table. Finally, her lethal gauge settles on me. The other board members look relieved. I stare calmly back at her with a look that belies my rapidly beating heart and the sweaty fist I'm clenching under the table. Her eyes narrow. Everyone apparently forgot to tell you only the president of the board is allowed to make appointments with the city council. The emotional journey I take from surprise and dismay through disappointment, anger, and finally resignation is a fairly quick one. I'd been here before. But this time, I'd gotten my hopes up, believing the need was so obvious and the project so non-controversial, we would surely sail smoothly to our goal and finally make a difference. Evie is ignoring the fact that she was the one who set me on this course months ago, that she had at one time applauded my suggestion and voted along with the others to pursue the idea of a playground. Pursue the idea. I get it now. She ignores these facts because she's changed her mind and she knows she can. This is her realm, like the other small towns dotted throughout this rural galaxy of sage and dust and rocks. Our community is a world unto itself with its own customs, culture, authorities, and hierarchies. Most importantly, Evie is one of the indigenous, and me, 
I've called this place home for a decade, and my family has lived in the region many more generations than hers has. In fact, my ancestors literally arrived in this country on the Mayflower. Still, I'm the alien here. And I've broken one of the many unwritten laws passed down and buried among this town's citizenry like landmines for the unsuspecting. Dream big, but never presume to turn those dreams into reality. Nothing ever changes here, and that's the way we like it. Besides, Evie snaps, I didn't receive any minutes. I sigh. I emailed them, like I always do. Here she tosses her head, and the glint in her eye signals another victory. Email, she sniffs, dismissing the evidence with a wave of her hand. I never check email. I continue to try to reason with her, which only makes her angrier. Suddenly I'm tired, and it's as if I'm watching myself from across the room. Evie's red face is turning purple, and I can see that my calmness, my continued politeness, as much as my transgression is driving her crazy. I could start yelling and swearing and get in her face, and she would back down, which would mean a quick end to this argument, and possibly even absolution. In your face is how people communicate here. At the counter in the Napa store, I hear the owner ask long-time customers, what the f*** do you want? And the customers answer, well, I need your help about as much as I need another I'll tell you that. My politeness exhausts Evie. Knowing her, she thinks I'm hiding something or I have some secret agenda I won't share with her. Here, people are only polite to those they dislike or don't know. I'm not better than they are, or above rough language. I just can't bring myself to talk that way. Perhaps it's the frowns I imagine on my ancestors' faces from all those Mayflower separatists all the way to my recently departed mother. They would be so disappointed in me, and I just can't bring myself to disappoint even to fit in. It is here, I remember that day so long ago, and I realize I've done it again. I've boarded the wrong bus. The day is crystal clear, unusual in our rainy city. Paul and I run ahead of our siblings through the bright morning sunlight. Laughing, we race each other to the bus stop. There we will wait with our older brother and sister for the city bus that delivers us to the private school we attend on the other side of town. We get to the stop well ahead of the others. We barely have time to catch our breath before a bus swerves to the curb and rolls to a stop in front of us, belching diesel. The air brakes blast in the bus and carefully deposit my paper ticket through the slot in the box beside the driver. Paul follows, high-kneeing his way up the steep steps on his short little legs, and we quickly find seats. But unlike every day before this one, our siblings do not climb onto the bus behind us. They are too far away for the driver to even notice them. To our horror, the doors crash shut and the bus lurches forward. Paul and I turn in panic to stare behind us through the scratched and dirty window for some glimpse of our brother and sister. I see them stop, in shock, I suppose, and then run toward the bus. But they are too late. The other women at the table watch Evie and me spar. Their eyes are wide, their lips parted, and their attention swivels between us as we volley back and forth. The expressions on their faces would appear blank to the untrained eye, but I can see embarrassment on some, a pout of boredom here, a glint of defensiveness there, and above all, a desperate desire for us to move on. Their main goal, I know, is to avoid being drawn into the argument. They're afraid of guilt by association, and that the endless recriminations I'll suffer for my infraction will also be directed at them. They want, most of all, to pretend this unexpected ripple never ruffled the familiar surface of their lives. 
Jane, who sits beside me, is particularly good at maintaining a maddening neutrality. If these meetings were the only place I'd encountered her, I would believe her to be ineffectual, simply attending to get out of the house. But this is not the case. Jane is, in fact, a force of nature. Like me, she has dreams of her own, but followed her husband and his career and ended up in this place a decade ago. Looking around as we drove into town, we'd both shaken our heads and said the same words to our husbands. Two years. Two years at the most. But we'd been lulled, like visitors to Brigadoon. The seduction was due to many things. Small town hominess, cheap real estate, the ever-changing light on the rocks, a full moon's ribbon reflected on the lake's mahogany ripple, the stillness, the cerulean sky. But mostly, having come from large cities, we were drawn in by our perception of its relative safety. This would be a good place to raise children. When it comes to children, Jane has me beat. Her faith encouraged her to birth numerous children, and although still in her forties, she's on the verge of ushering the last one into adulthood. I'm relatively sure she's the designated queen among her fellow believers, and I do not begrudge her that status. She deserves it. Jane has eight children. I have two. The watching part of me wonders, even as the other part of me continues to wrestle with Evie, whether or not I could have brought myself to have more children if, like Jane, I believed doing so would enhance my eternal reward. Really, two was all I'd ever wanted, and I am happy with my boys. But as I consider Jane, I also think, not without guilt, that just one more would have been nice. Daughter might have been nice. Jane sees me watching her and casually leans her elbow on the table. She subtly blocks the side of her face with her hand and rolls her eyes in response to Evie's continuing tirade. I will love her forever for that show of solidarity. I imagine us as allies who show the indigenous that change can be good. Together, we could help them understand life is not static. Things either improve or get worse, and things in this town haven't improved for quite some time. But my fantasy is brief. Jane's husband is due to retire any day now from the government installation where all our husbands work. Then, their children raised and gone, they will also leave. My brother and I go from panic to despair when the bus turns where it's never turned before. Paul realizes, as I do, that not only are we alone, we are lost. Though paralyzed with fear, I sense my world begin to shift. As the third of four children, the lines of defense between me and danger consist of family members. First, I have my father, who is unfalteringly fair, steady, and faithful. After him is my mother, who from a combination of enthusiasm, literature, and her astounding imagination, spins adventure for us under sheet-swathed tables, ensuring we never become bored and are never tempted to wander too far from home. Next is the oldest child, my sister, who is the smartest, most confident, most beautiful person I have ever known. Finally, I have my older brother, my hero who tortures me mercilessly, but who I am certain would sacrifice his life to protect me. Through these multi-layers, no hint of peril has a chance to disturb Paul and me. We are protected, even spoiled, some would say. But to us, this is just the life we've always known, a life filled with love and safety we never question. Paul looks at me with big blue eyes that match my own. There is no trust in those eyes. He knows I'm not up to this task, that I cannot save us. 
I see no hint of hope in his baby face, only terror, and his fear makes me feel protective of him for the first time in my life. Slowly the realization that I am not just the third child, but another layer in the line of defense settles on my shoulders. I'm so far down in the hierarchy I never should have been called upon, but here I am. I think of the heroes and heroines from all those stories our mother read us, Bible stories and family histories about brave pilgrims and pioneers, and a part of me realizes those stories weren't just for our entertainment. They were also my mother's way of preparing me for a world where bad things happen, decisions have to be made, and people must act courageously. But she'd also instructed us to never leave your seat until the bus stops, never talk to strangers. The bus rumbles on through neighborhoods I've never seen toward the center of the city. Barely breathing, I grasp Paul's small, sweaty hand and reach for the pole beside my seat. It's all right, I tell him. We're getting off. Evie has calmed just a bit. Who do you think you are? She doesn't say it in exactly those words, but her expression does. The derision, the anger, the smile that somehow manages to resemble a sneer. That's not how we do things. You will never be one of us. We don't want your kind here. I think, sadly, I loved you. And I did, especially after the sudden loss of my mother. I threw myself into my infatuation with this town that would keep my children safe from the rest of the world, as if it could keep them from the hurt and the pain I'd suffered following her death. The way I felt was almost romantic. I loved the people here like a new wife loves her husband and throws herself into making a life for the two of them. She ignores his faults, the little hurts, and smothers him with her overwhelming need to create a perfect, unassailable nest. The fantasy worked for a while. This small place was perfect for my small children, for the simple small life I wanted for them. The traffic was so light they could ride their little bikes in the street. The park with its tiny crop of trees was to them the grassy meadow and the big woods. Mayberry and Disney combined. The town was all the adventure they needed. They themselves were all the adventure I'd wanted and all I could see. Those times when I returned to the city with its smog and traffic and crime to visit my sister and brothers, I'd feel warm gratitude toward this place that would let my children grow in its small, safe womb. But my sons are getting older. Standing on the precipice of their teen years, I've discovered there are two ways for an adolescent to react to life here. They either outgrow its confines and throw them off, or they remain small, like their environment. I didn't create my boys to stay small. They have big dreams. They want to be the heroes of their own stories. They don't know it yet, but I've begun to feel a creeping dread that what they want, what they need, isn't possible in this town. If we stay, will they drown their dreams in 24-ounce cans of Canadian beer and promiscuous sex like so many of their slightly older peers? I look into Evie's closed-off, bitter face and see their future. Involuntarily, I shudder, which makes her falter for just a second. My current experience in this town resembles a relationship after some years have passed, when you can no longer ignore the faults, yet you still see the potential. You long for your love to fulfill the possibilities you see, and you think, fatally, that you can help them get there. The last time I visited the city I went alone, without the children. Much to my surprise, it was again the city I loved. Astonished, I found myself embraced by long, unobserved beauty and whispered memories. 
I stayed in the heart of it, and yes, there was too much traffic and graffiti and garbage reeking in back alleys. Everywhere I looked, conspicuous consumers hurried past the deranged, the sad, and the poor as if they didn't exist. But I also saw my childhood of museums and theaters, good food and coffee, bookstores and art, old friends and family, and a shared history. The city was wealthy with variety and bold creativity, a place so old and so big I could never make even the slightest mark on it for good or ill. I could go to the supermarket, the bank, the gas station every day for a year and never see one person who knew me or cared about me. So why, in that huge impersonal city, did I feel like I belonged in a way I've never felt in this small town? Paul and I sway on shaky legs just behind the driver. I try to sound confident. We need to get off. Huh? His voice is gruff. How can I muster the courage to speak again? We need to get off! I yell in his ear to be sure he hears me above the rattling roar of the engine. We're on the wrong bus! I am overjoyed when he pulls the bus over right now, right here with no bus stop in sight. He comes to a quick halt that throws us forward and we grab the fare box to keep from crashing into the windshield. The look he turns on me is angry at first, but then his eyes soften. You meant to get on the 20? As if by magic, he produces a sheaf of transfer tickets and a hole punch from somewhere about his waist. I am so relieved I feel faint, but I manage a nod. He punches two of the transfer tickets and hands them to me, then gestures behind us, using the hole punch like a pointer. Go back that way and around the corner. You'll see the stop. Number 20 is right behind me. I'll call the driver and tell him to wait for you. I whisper a thank you he probably can't hear and drag Paul behind me down the steps and into the sun. We have to hurry, I say to my brother, and take off, pulling him behind me. Run, Paul! We round the corner. I see the orange and white stop sign and the bus next to it with a number 20 on the front. Panting, we climb onto the bus, the right bus. I scan the riders, hoping to see my big sister and brother, but they aren't there. I sit in the first open seat and Paul settles in beside me. He still grasps my hand, but he has remained dry-eyed and reasonably calm throughout the entire ordeal. I smile down at him. He returns my smile with a look that is equal parts relief and triumph, and I realize I must have the same expression on my face. The first thing I see as the bus pulls to the stop across from our elementary school is my mother. She's staring at the grimy bus windows with wide, searching eyes. I wonder, as Paul and I walk slowly toward the door, will she cry? Will she hug me too tight? Will she tell us how naughty we've been, how we've made her worry? Whoosh! The door opens, and we stumble down the steps into her arms. For a minute, she does hug us too tight. But then she pulls me back, looks me over at arm's length, and smiles. Well... That was an adventure, wasn't it? Evie has gotten to the part where she says she knew this would happen, that she can't work with me, one of us will have to resign. I realize now that in their small wisdom, they've been right all along. I don't belong here, and neither do my children. I've never really wanted what they want. I tried to make their smallness into my safety, another line of defense, and that was unfair of me. I see myself through Ebby's eyes and I understand her anger. I'm angry at myself, but only for an instant because I know what to do next. She stops mid-sentence as I rise and make my way around the table to where she's standing, towering over all of us. She flinches as I move toward her. Another woman gasps. They can't believe our disagreement has come to this. But I pull Ebby to me and hug her tight. 
An eerie quiet settles on the room. I think the others have all stopped breathing. I know Evie has. Her body remains stiff and unyielding. I don't care anymore that she doesn't want to understand and never will. It'll be all right, I say softly. I'm getting off now. I wink at Jane's bewildered expression as I turn toward the exit. The quiet is broken and everyone starts talking at once. I hear one of them call my name, followed closely by Evie's hard voice, let her go. Whoosh. The door opens and I step out. We're going to read a short story by Jack London called A Daughter of the Aurora. You, what you call lazy mans, you lazy mans would desire me to half for wife. It is not good. Never, no never, will lazy mans my husband be. Thus, Joy Molino spoke her mind to Jack Harrington even as she had spoken it, but more tritely and in his own tongue, to Louis Savoy the previous night. Listen, Joy. No, no. Why moose I listen to lazy mans? It is fair bad. You hang round, make visitation to my cabin, and do nothing. How you get grub for the famine? Why have not you the dust? Other mans have plenty. But I work hard, Joy. Never a day am I not on trail or up creek. Even now have I just come off. My dogs are yet tired. Other men have luck and find plenty of gold, but I I have no luck. Ah, but when this man's with the wife which is Indian, this man's McCormack, when him discover the Klondike, you go not. Other man's go. Other man's now rich. You know I was prospecting over on the head reaches of the Tanana, Harrington protested, and knew nothing of the El Dorado or Bonanza until it was too late. That is different. Only you are what you call way off. What? Way off. In the, yes, in the dark. It is never too late. One there rich mine is there on the creek, which is El Dorado. The mans drive the stake, and him go away. No other mans know what of him become. The mans, him which strive the stake, is never no more. Sixty days no mans on that claim file the paper. Then other mans, plenty other mans, what you call, jump that claim. Then they race, oh, so queek like the wind, to file the paper. Him be very rich. Him get grub for famine." Harrington hid the major portion of his interest. When's the time up? he asked. What claim is it? So I speak Louis Savoy last night, she continued, ignoring him. Him, I think, the winner. Hang Louis Savoy. So Louis Savoy speak in my cabin last night. Him say, Joy, I am strong man's. I have good dogs. I have long wind. I will be winner. Then you will have me for husband? And I say to him, I say... What'd you say? I say, if Louis Savoy is winner, then will he have me for wife? And if he don't win? Then Louis Savoy him will not be what you call the father of my children. 
And if I win? You win there? Ha, ha, never. Exasperating as it was, Joy Molyneux's laughter was pretty to hear. Harrington did not mind it. He had long since been broken in. Besides, he was no exception. She had forced all her lovers to suffer in kind. And very enticing she was just then, her lips parted, her color heightened by the sharp kiss of the frost, her eyes vibrant with the lure which is the greatest of all lures, and which may be seen nowhere save in woman's eyes. Her sled dogs clustered about her in hirsute masses, and the leader, Wolf Fang, laid his long snout softly in her lap. If I do win, Harrington pressed. She looked from dog to lover and back again. What you say, Wolf Fang? If him strong mans and file the paper, shall we his wife become? Eh? What you say? Wolf Fang picked up his ears and growled at Harrington. It is very cold, she suddenly added with feminine irrelevance, rising to her feet and straightening out the team. Her lover looked on stolidly. She had kept him guessing from the first time they met. And patience had been joined under his virtues. Hi, Wolf Fang, she cried, springing upon the sled as it leaped into sudden motion. Ay, ya, Moshan. From the corner of his eye, Harrington watched her swinging down the trail to Forty Mile. Where the road forked and crossed the river to Fort Cudahy, she halted the dogs and turned about. Oh, Mr. Lazymans, she called back. Wolf Fang, him say yes, if you win air. But somehow, as such things will, it leaked out. And all Forty Mile, which had hitherto speculated on Joy Molyneux's choice between her two latest lovers, now hazarded bets and guesses as to which would win the forthcoming race. The camp divided itself into two factions, and every effort was put forth in order that their respective favorites might be the first in at the finish. There was a scramble for the best dogs the country could afford, for dogs, and good ones, were essential above all to success. And it meant much to the victor. Besides the possession of a wife, the like of which had yet to be created, it stood for a mine worth a million at least. That fall, when news came down of McCormick's discovery on Bonanza, all the lower country, Circle City and Forty Mile included, had stampeded up the Yukon, at least all save those who, like Jack Harrington and Louis Savoy, were away prospecting in the West. Moose pastures and creeks were staked indiscriminately and promiscuously, and incidentally, one of the unlikeliest of creeks, El Dorado. Olaf Nelson laid claim to five hundred of its linear feet, duly posted his notice, and as duly disappeared. At that time, the nearest recording office was in the police barracks at Fort Cudahy, just across the river from Forty Mile. But when it became bruited abroad that El Dorado Creek was a treasure house, it was quickly discovered that Olaf Nelson had failed to make the down Yukon trip to file upon his property. Men cast hungry eyes upon the ownerless claim, where they knew a thousand thousand dollars waited but shovel and sluice box. Yet they dared not touch it, for there was a law which permitted sixty days to lapse between the staking and the filing, during which time a claim was immune. The whole country knew of Olaf Nelson's disappearance and scores of men made preparation for the jumping and for the consequent race to Fort Cudahy. But competition at Forty Mile was limited, 
with the camp devoting its energies to the equipping either of Jack Harrington or Louis Savoy. No man was unwise enough to enter the contest single-handed. It was a stretch of a hundred miles to the recorder's office, and it was planned that the two favorites should have four relays of dogs stationed along the trail. Naturally, the last relay was to be the crucial one, and for these twenty-five miles their respective partisans strove to obtain the strongest possible animals. So bitter did the factions wax, and so high did they bid, that dogs brought stiffer prices than ever before in the annals of the country. And as it chanced, this scramble for dogs turned the public eye still more searchingly upon Joy Molinoy. Not only was she the cause of it all, but she possessed the finest sled dog from Chilkoot to Bering Sea. As wheel or leader, Wolf Fang had no equal. The man whose sled he led down the last stretch was bound to win. There could be no doubt of it, but the community had an innate sense of the fitness of things, and not once was Joy vexed by overtures for his use. And the factions drew consolation from the fact that if one man did not profit by him, neither should the other. However, since man in the individual or in the aggregate has been so fashioned that he goes through life blissfully obtuse to the deeper subtleties of his womankind, so the men of Forty Mile failed to divine the inner deviltry of Joy Molinoy. They confessed afterward that they had failed to appreciate this dark-eyed daughter of the Aurora, whose father had traded furs in the country before ever they dreamed of invading it and who had herself first opened eyes on the scintillating northern lights. Nay, accident of birth had not rendered her less the woman, nor had it limited her woman's understanding of men. They knew she played with him, but they did not know the wisdom of her play. Its deepness and its deftness. They failed to see more than the exposed card, so that to the very last forty mile was in a stake of pleasant obfuscation, and it was not until she cast her final trump Early in the week, the camp turned out to start Jack Harrington and Louis Savoy on their way. They had taken a shrewd margin of time, for it was their wish to arrive at Olaf Nelson's claim some days previous to the expiration of its immunity, that they might rest themselves and their dogs be fresh for the first relay. On the way up, they found the men of Dawson already stationing spare dog teams along the trail and it was manifest that little expense had been spared in view of the millions at stake. A couple of days after the departure of their champions, Forty Mile began sending up their relays, first to the 75 station, then to the 50, and last to the 25. The teams for the last stretch were magnificent and so equally matched that the camp discussed their relative merits for a full hour at 50 below before they were permitted to pull out. At the last moment, Joy Molinoy dashed in among them on her sled. She drew Lon McFain, who had charge of Harrington's team, to one side, and hardly had the first words left her lips when it was noticed that his lower jaw dropped with a celerity, an emphasis suggestive of great things. He unhitched Wolf Fang from her sled, put him at the head of Harrington's team, and mushed the string of animals into the Yukon Trail. Poor Louis Savoy, men said. But Joy Molinoy flashed her black eyes defiantly and drove back to her father's cabin. Midnight drew near on Olaf Nelson's claim. A few hundred fur-clad men had preferred sixty below in the jumping to the inducements of warm cabins and comfortable bunks. 
Several score of them had their notices prepared for posting and their dogs at hand. A bunch of Captain Constantine's mounted police had been ordered on duty that fair play might rule. The command had gone forth that no man should place a stake till the last second of the day had ticked itself into the past. In the Northland, such commands are equal to Jehovah's in the matter of potency. The dum-dum is rapid and effective as the thunderbolt. It was clear and cold. The aurora borealis painted palpitating color revels on the sky. Rosy waves of cold brilliancy swept across the zenith, while great coruscating bars of greenish-white blotted out the stars, or a titan's hand reared mighty arches above the pole. And at this mighty display the wolf-dogs howled as had their ancestors of old time. A bare-skin-coated policeman stepped prominently to the fore, watch in hand. Men hurried among the dogs, rousing them to their feet, untangling their traces, straightening them out. The entries came to the mark, firmly gripping stakes and notices. They had gone over the boundaries of the claim so often that they could now have done it blindfolded. The policeman raised his hand, casting off their superfluous furs and blankets, and with a final cinching of belts, they came to attention. Time! Sixty pairs of hands unmitted, as many pairs of moccasins gripped hard upon the snow. Go! They shot across the wide expanse, round the four sides, sticking notices at every corner, and down the middle where the two center stakes were to be planted. Then they sprang for the sleds on the frozen bed of the creek. An anarchy of sound and motion broke out. Sled collided with sled, and dog team fastened upon dog team with bristling manes and screaming fangs. The narrow creek was glutted with the struggling mass. Lashes and butts of dog whips were distributed impartially among men and brutes. And to make it of greater moment, each participant had a bunch of comrades intent on breaking him out of jam. But one by one and by sheer strength, the sleds crept out and shot from sight in the darkness of the overhanging banks. Jack Harrington had anticipated this crash and waited by his sled until it untangled. Louis Savoy, aware of his rival's greater wisdom in the matter of dog driving, had followed his lead and also waited. The route had passed beyond earshot when they took the trail, and it was not till they had traveled the ten miles or so down to Bonanza that they came upon it, speeding long in single file but well bunched. There was little noise and less chance of one passing another at that stage. The sleds, from runner to runner, measured 16 inches, the trail 18. But the trail, packed down fully afoot by the traffic, was like a gutter. On either side spread the blanket of soft snow crystals. If a man turned into this in an endeavor to pass, his dogs would wallow perforce to their bellies and slow down to a snail's pace. So the men lay close to their leaping sleds and waited. No alteration in position occurred down the 15 miles of Bonanza and Klondike to Dawson, where the Yukon was encountered. Here the first relays waited, but here, intent to kill their first teams, if necessary, Harrington and Savoy had their fresh teams placed a couple of miles beyond those of the others. In the confusion of changing sleds, they passed full half the bunch. Perhaps thirty men were still leading them when they shot on to the broad breast of the Yukon. Here was the tug. 
When the river froze in the fall, a mile of open water had been left between two mighty jams. This had but recently crested, the current being swift, and now it was as level, hard, and slippery as a dance floor. The instant they struck this glare ice, Harrington came to his knees, holding precariously on with one hand, his whip singing fiercely among his dogs in fearsome abjurations hurtling about their ears. The team spread out on the smooth surface, each straining to the uttermost, but few men in the north could lift their dogs as did Jack Harrington. At once he began to pull ahead, and Louis Savoy, taking the pace, hung on desperately, his leaders running even with the tail of his rival's sled. Midway on the glassy stretch, their relays shot out from the bank, but Harrington did not slacken. Watching his chance when the new sled swung in close, he leaped across, shouting as he did so, and jumping up the pace of his fresh dogs. The other driver fell off somehow. Savoy did likewise with his relay, and the abandoned teams, swerving to right and left, collided with the others and piled the ice with confusion. Harrington cut out the pace. Savoy hung on. As they neared the end of the glare ice, they swept abreast of the leading sled. When they shot into the narrow trail between the soft snowbanks, they led the race. And Dawson, watching by the light of the aurora, swore that it was neatly done. When the frost grows lusty at sixty below, men cannot long remain without fire or excessive exercise and live. So Harrington and Savoy now fell to the ancient custom of ride and run, leaping from their sleds, toe thongs in hand. They ran behind till the blood resumed its wonted channels and expelled the frost, then back to the sleds till the heat again ebbed away. Thus, riding and running, they covered the second and third relays. Several times on smooth ice, Savoy spurted his dogs and as often failed to gain past. Strung along for five miles in the rear, the remainder of the race strove to overtake them. But vainly, for to Louis Savoy alone was the glory given of keeping Jack Harrington's killing pace. As they swung into the 75-mile station, Lon McFain dashed alongside. Wolf Fang in the lead caught Harrington's eye, and he knew that the race was his. No team in the north could pass him on those last 25 miles. And when Savoy saw Wolf Fang heading his rival's team, he knew that he was out of the running, and he cursed softly to himself in the way woman is most frequently cursed. But he still clung to the other's smoking trail, gambling on chance to the last. And as they churned along, the day breaking in the southeast, they marveled in joy and sorrow at that which Joy Molinoy had done. Forty Mile had early crawled out of its sleeping furs and congregated near the edge of the trail. From this point, it could view the up Yukon course to its first bend several miles away. Here, it could also see across the river to the finish at Fort Cudahy, where the gold recorder nervously awaited. Joy Molinoy had taken her position several rods back from the trail, and under the circumstances, the rest of Forty Mile forebore interposing itself so the space was clear between her and the slender line of the course. Fires had been built, and around these men wagered dust and dogs, the long odds on Wolf Fang. Here they come, shrilled an Indian boy from the top of a pine. Up the Yukon a black speck appeared against the snow, closely followed by a second. As these grew larger, 
more black specks manifested themselves, but at a goodly distance to the rear. Gradually they resolved themselves into dogs and sleds, and men lying flat upon them. Wolf Fang leads, a lieutenant of police whispered to Joy. She smiled her interest back. Ten to one on Harrington, cried a Birch Creek king, dragging out his sack. The queen, her pay you not mooch, queried Joy. The lieutenant shook his head. You have some dust, ah? How mooch, she continued. He exposed his sack. She gauged it with a rapid eye. Maybe, say, two hundred, eh? Good. Now I give what you call the tip. Cover the bet. Joy smiled inscrutably. The lieutenant pondered. He glanced up the trail. The two men had risen to their knees and were lashing their dogs furiously, Harrington in the lead. Ten to one on Harrington, bawled the Birch Creek King, flourishing his sack in the lieutenant's face. Cover the bet, Joy prompted. He obeyed, shrugging his shoulders in token that he yielded, not to the dictate of his reason, but to her charm. Joy nodded to reassure him. All noise ceased. Men paused in the placing of bets. Yawing and reeling and plunging like luggers before the wind, the sled swept wildly upon them. Though he still kept his leader up to the tail of Harrington's sled, Louis Savoy's face was without hope. Harrington's mouth was set. He looked neither to the right nor to the left. His dogs were leaping in perfect rhythm, firm-footed, close to the trail, and Wolf Fang, head low and unseeing, whining softly, was leading his comrades magnificently. Forty miles stood breathless, not a sound save the roar of the runners and the voice of the whips. Then the clear voice of Joy Molyneux rose on the air. ay ya, Wolf Fang! Wolf Fang! Wolf Fang heard. He left the trail sharply, heading directly for his mistress. The team dashed after him, and the sled poised an instant on a single runner, then shot Harrington into the snow. Savoy was by like a flash. Harrington pulled to his feet and watched him skimming across the river to the gold recorders. He could not help hearing what was said. Ah, him do very well, Joy Molyneux was explaining to the lieutenant. Him, what you call, set the pace. Yes, him set the pace very well. This is chapter 27 of Winds of Wyoming. My Kindle tells me we're at 74% starting at chapter 27, so just a quarter of the book left. Kate took a bite of the quiche she prepared with random ingredients from Dimple's refrigerator. Not bad, considering she hadn't cooked in years. Dimple nodded her approval. This tastes as good as it smells. You'll have to give me your rhubarb. I don't have a recipe, Kate laughed. If I wrote anything down, it would be something like, open refrigerator door, dig through contents, find appropriate ingredients, combine and pour into pie crust before placing in hot oven. You must cook like my mother did, Dimple said. She could root around an empty cupboard and come up with a meal fit for royalty, but she never had any recipes to pass on, so I have to use cookbooks. 
Oh, Dimple, your meals are always delicious. Can I ask you something? Dimple cut another piece with her fork. Sure. What's going on between you and Mike? Wow, that's a radical change of subject. I talked with him and Laura after church on Sunday. He acted funny when I mentioned your name, so I thought I'd ask. Did anyone? No, Dimple said. No one else was close enough to hear what I said. Good. Kate breathed a sigh of relief, remembering the last time she and Mike talked. The truth hurt, but it was the truth. Nothing is going on between us. Are you sure? What are you getting at? Kate took a bite of toast. I sense tension between the two of you, and I don't want you to lose each other. Kate nearly choked on the toast. I don't see how I can lose someone I don't have. She reached for her water. Kate! Once again, Dimple's blue eyes drilled into her soul. Mike is in love with you. How can you possibly say that? Kate set the glass down. It's obvious. Well, it's not obvious to me. If what you say is remotely true, I'm not worthy of him. We're night and day, black and white. He's a good person. I'm a felon. He deserves a wholesome, pure woman, like you or his mom. <sighs> We've had this discussion before. Dimple wiped her mouth with a napkin and folded her hands. Would you still think I'm a wholesome, pure person? If I told you I murdered my husband? Driving as fast as the dirt road allowed, Mike slowed when he topped the hill and let the truck roll down to Battle Creek Pasture. He parked behind Clint's pickup and slid across the seat to climb out the passenger side. Clint met him between the trucks. Thanks for calling, Mike offered a wry smile, although I'm not sure I want to know what's going on this time. He studied the bison grazing on the other side of the fence. May not be important. Clint scratched at a red bump on his wrist. But I figured you should see what I found. Mike slapped at the pest he could feel crawling on his neck. Skeeters are hungry today. Yeah, bloodthirsty little buggers. Clint motioned toward the hill Mike had driven down. When I topped the rise on my way to the pasture, I saw someone on an ATV. Looked male. Couldn't tell for sure. Whoever it was hightailed it over the ridge. I followed as fast as I could in my truck, but when I got to the top, all I saw were tracks in the grass leading into the trees. I inspected the fence and found the upper gate lying on the ground. He ran his fingers across his wrist again. I looked for strays but didn't see any, so I closed the gate. Then I checked the wires. They were hot. I figured if the electricity was still running, the fence wasn't cut. No dead bison? Mike held his breath, the screensaver on Kate's computer, at the forefront of his thoughts. No dead bison, but... But what? Hard to tell. Clint hesitated. I think there's dried blood on the ground by the gate. Maybe a hawk or a coyote killed a rabbit there, or... He shrugged his shoulders. Mike followed Clint's truck up the hill, steering around rocks and sagebrush. He studied his herd, looking for signs of injury or agitation. The animals appeared calm, thank God. He scratched at the bite on his neck. Somehow, he had to put an end to the harassment.
Clint was already out of his pickup when Mike parked Old Blue at the upper end of the pasture. Together, they stooped to study the dark stains in the soil, which became a smeared trail of brown leading out of the enclosure toward a stand of trees thirty yards away. This blood isn't fresh, Mike frowned. Does that mean the gate was open for a day or two? Not likely. Clint shook his head. The guys check the cattle and the bison at least once a day. Then somebody is going in and out of the pasture doing only God knows what. Maybe they left the gate open this time because you scared them off. Could be, Clint said, but what are they doing in there? Let's go find out. I hope you enjoyed those stories, and we are on our way out. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckyliles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckyliles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carey Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.